couple of sons, and I suspect that you'll probably all say the same thing. I'm going to hang the tax out with that story. So I'd like to spend this, the time this morning looking at our second lesson, Paul's second letter to the church of Colony. Now, some of you may know that I enjoyed looking at a variety of translations when I'm studying in this last week. It has been a wonderful example of why I do this. Uh, the lesson that we heard just a moment ago, the words, we entreat you on behalf of Christ. And then I may translate the New International Version. We read these words, for Christ's love compels us. And the New Revised Standard says, we urge you. In the name of Christ, you have another translation that says, I implore you on Christ's behalf. In each instance, the translators are attempting to use the very best word that they can to give us the true sense of what the writer was attempting to say. It's right. Urge, compel, entreat, implore. Four very similar words, again, each just a, a little different in meaning. But in each instance, we get the idea that Paul, what Paul was saying is what I'm doing, I'm doing for one reason and one reason alone. I'm doing what God has called me to do. I, I can't do any less. I'm writing to you because I must. God has placed this message on my heart. The best information we have suggests that Paul wrote this second letter to the church in Corinth and to the Christians throughout Acacia. Acacia was the, the Roman province of Greece, south of Macedonia. And the city of Corinth at Paul's time had a population of about a quarter of a million free people and nearly a half million slaves. In many ways, it was a chief city, certainly one of the chief cities in all of Greece. Now, it was not a university city like Athens, but it was just a major trading center in all of Greece. Corinth was located on an isthmus that lay between the Aegean Sea on the east and the Ionian Sea on the west. And the distance to that point is only a few miles, and so ships were actually transported by road over land from one body of water to the other because it was safer and actually quicker than sailing around the southern coast of Greece. So Corinth was the true hub of trading in the area of the Roman Empire. Years later, they built a canal that connected the two seas, and that even broadened the trade routes even more, but that wouldn't, that wouldn't happen in a number of years. Like any large commercial city, though, Corinth was also the center of immorality. The temple of uh, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, was located just outside the city, and their religious practices were not all that different from those that we read about in Antioch. The verb to corinthicize came to mean the practice of immoral sex. Today, I guess we call it Hollywood. <laughs> Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth was written because the church had been infiltrated by false teachers in his absence. Now we know that there were false prophets that attempted to pass themselves off as God's spokesmen in order to gain honor and prestige among the people by doing that. And there were also false teachers that professed to know the truth, although their teachings were false. And Paul writes to the church reminding them that his personal life had always been honorable and that his message of salvation through God's grace was the true teaching. This morning's reading, Paul is talking about reconciliation. Reconciliation, that's a big word. That's a meaning. Now, those of you that are in our class after coffee, I remember that I mentioned, I think just last week, that the word atonement 
that's used throughout the Old Testament is, is always translated into reconciliation when it's used in the New Testament. In Jewish worship, thousands of animals were sacrificed each year in the temple in Jerusalem. Each family would contribute their own sacrifices of lambs and pigeons. Jewish law was very specific in its details of how offerings were to be made. Various offerings serve various purposes, but the offerings for the atonement of sin had a major purpose. They were meant to bring man in the world of God. God allowed the blood of an animal to take the place of the blood of the one offering the sacrifice. The same idea was continued into the New Testament, where Christ's death on the cross has been seen as the final and ultimate sacrifice to atone for the sins of the whole world. And that's what Paul meant when he said, one died for all. Let me be clear, folks. Turn to page 447. You know, when we get past those little worn pages right in the middle, sometimes we can get the rest of the church with that lot of good stuff. Page 447. You find the service of reconciliation. In fact, there's actually two services. There's a short form and a longer form, depending on how primitive you may need to be. Some of you could probably get by with the short form. I suspect others might need the longer form. Of course, that's speculation on my part. Look at that during the coming week. See what the words of reconciliation are for us. Reconciliation is a, is a penitent, it's a sacrament of the church. It's one of the ways that we receive God's grace. The prayer book says that reconciliation or penance is a sacrament for those who repent of their sins and confess them to God. And that may be done in the presence. The priest will hear your confession and assure you of God's pardon and grace. And the season of Lent is a wonderful time for that to take place. Reconciliation is forgiveness. It is atonement or at one with God. Paul explains to people why he's writing to them. He says, the love of Christ urges me on. Now, I'm not certain whether Paul is saying that Christ's love of him urges him on or his love for Christ urges him on. But either translation would fit and either would make sense. The love of Christ urges us on. Reconciliation involves a change in the relationship from bad to good, from enmity to friendship. When used with nations, it involves the establishing of peace between nations that were previously at war with one another. But it's important to note that it is God who reconciles us. He restores us in our relationship by bringing about a change in our lives. Paul said that God accomplished this reconciliation through Christ, through the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection. The reconciliation is related to the New Testament concepts of forgiveness and grace and justification and redemption. And yet it's distinct from them. Forgiveness is the first step of reconciliation because we are all sinners. And we all need God's forgiveness before we can be reconciled. Grace is that understood gift of God whereby we become the benefactors of God's forgiveness. Justification is a word that we use when we're talking about someone who is found not guilty in the court of law. And you and I can be reconciled with God because through his death and reconciliation, our gift was taken away. And finally, we've, we've talked about that word redemption before. 
Remember that's the price that was paid to be a slave? And Christ became our redeemer when he paid the price of our salvation on the cross. Back during the end of Advent, we were looking at that familiar passage from John's Gospel, For God so loved the world. And I suggested that meant the whole world. The unlovable as well as the lovable. The worshiper as well as the heretic. And that's what Paul is saying here this morning. We are convinced that Christ died for all. And if that's true, that he died in our place. And in his rising, it guaranteed that one day we will rise with him. Paul said that if you're in Christ, you're a new person. You're a new creation. But what was it that Jesus had said in that conversation with Nicodemus? He said, you need to be born again. And all of this takes place because we've been reconciled to God. We've been forgiven by God. We received his grace, the grace that could only come from God. Jesus was the atonement for our sins, and through him we've been reconciled to God. The other thing that Paul, I think, would tell us this morning is that new creations have new standards. Some of the things that had an appeal to that non-believer will lose its appeal to that third person that's been born again. Paul said, old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. There was a time when Paul, or Saul, had judged everything by the world's standards, and he'd set out to do everything that he could to eliminate the Christian faith in the world. But something happened to Saul on that road to Damascus. Something happened that changed his perspective. It changed his outlook. It changed his standards. And that something that happened was a personal encounter with the risen Lord. Jesus appeared to Saul and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did you ever stop to wonder why Jesus said that? Why didn't Jesus say, Saul, why are you persecuting these Christians? Why are you persecuting these people who believe in me? Why are you persecuting my followers? That's not what he said. Jesus said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Remember the verses in Matthew's Gospel when Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was in prison and you visited me. And then when he was asked the question, when did we do these things for you? He said, when you do them for the least of these, my brethren, Jesus was saying that when we do something good for someone else, that it's like we're doing it to Christ himself and it's to God. But Paul suggests the flip side of that coin is this. If you're doing harm to somebody else, it's the same thing as if you're doing harm to Christ. Jesus said, Saul, you're persecuting these people who put their trust in me, and it's the same thing as if you're persecuting me. And that's my father. Paul knew that there had been that time in his life when he had been a persecutor. But thank God, those times had changed. He no longer saw himself as Christ's persecutor. Now he saw himself as what? Christ's ambassador. In verse 20, Paul says, For we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We have ambassadors today that represent our country around the world. But this is a position that we utilized ever since Bible times. During the time of Paul's writing, the Roman Empire was divided into two types of provinces. One was under the direct control of the Senate in Rome, and the other fell under the control of the emperor. The distinction was rather simple. The provinces that were peaceful and had no troops were senatorial provinces. Provinces, though, that were turbulent, where troops were needed to keep the peace, 
imperial provinces. And in imperial provinces, the man who administered the province on behalf of the emperor was the Leticus. That's the Latin word for ambassador. That's where we get legislated from. The Greek word that Paul uses here has the same meaning. So what we see is a person who has received a direct commission from the emperor to handle his affairs, to speak on his behalf. He was his ambassador. And Paul sees himself as having been commissioned by Jesus Christ to do the work of the church in the name of Christ. But the word Leticus has another use as well. When the Roman Senate decided that a country should become a province of the empire, they just said, Tim, look at I. That's plural for look at us. They, they said, Tim, these men that, it, that were envoys from the emperor to work along with the general and arrange for terms of peace, determine the boundaries of the new province. They would work to draw up a constitution for the new administration. And then they would return to the Senate to have their work ratified. These were men who were given the responsibility of bringing others into the family of the Roman Empire's Empire. And again, Paul sees himself in a similar role. Paul thinks of himself as the man who's bringing others to terms with God so that they too can become members of God's family. There's no more responsibility or no more responsible position than that of an ambassador. And Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. And the word he uses painted a vivid picture of those who heard his letter read. I mean, did you notice he said, we are ambassadors? He didn't say, I'm an ambassador. He was including all Christians in that position. You know, the position of an ambassador in today's world is not all that different. An ambassador in this country is, is sent out <coughs> quite often to work among people who speak a different language. Quite often they go and live in an environment whose traditions and customs are very different from their own. People whose ways of life differ greatly from what they're accustomed to. And Paul would suggest to us this morning that the task of the Christian is not all that different from that of the modern day ambassador. We live and work in a world, <clears throat> but we're citizens of heaven. We're called to adapt our, to our environment in order to be successful and to fulfill our mission. But we must never lose sight of the one who is commissioned us to represent him. Another thing that an ambassador does is to speak for his country. When a U.S. ambassador speaks, he or she speaks with the voice of the American government. He represents the president, and the words that he or she conveys are the words of the president. Paul would remind us this morning that we too have been called to speak for Christ. In our daily activities, we must be the voice which brings the message of Christ in the world. Another thing we see about an ambassador is that the honor of the country is in the hands of the ambassador. There have been stories throughout history of ambassadors who have embarrassed themselves and their country because of their thoughtless deeds. Because quite often, a country is judged by the action of the man who represents the country. His words are listened to and his deeds are watched and conclusions are made as to what kind of country he or she represents. When an ambassador does not perform the task that they should, there can be serious ramifications. And the final thing that we see about an ambassador is that they have a duty not only to deliver a specific message or to carry out a specific policy, but he or she is obligated to watch and study the people of the country and seek opportunities to present themselves 
and their country in the most attractive way. The responsibility of the ambassador is to represent his country to those to whom he or she has been sent in the most effective and timely fashion. And if we can understand that we too have been called as Christ ambassadors just as Paul was, then we can begin to see that our responsibility is to God's kingdom. We have the proud privilege and sometimes the terrifying responsibility to be God's representatives here on earth. The honor of Christ and the church is in our hands. But your every word and deed and action by those words and deeds and actions, someone will think more or less of your church and of your master. We, like Paul, have a message for the people that we've been set among. And what is that message? Be reconciled to God. Ask for God's forgiveness. Receive God's grace. It has never been a question of being of God being a stranger man. That's what allows us to be reconciled to God. The message that Paul wrote about as an appeal from a loving father from a wandering and a strange child to come home where love is waiting just as we heard in the parable of the prodigal son. Where are we in all this? What does Paul's 2,000 year old letter have to say to us this morning? Well, reconciliation is an ongoing process because unfortunately we continue to do things in our lives that are displeasing to God. Some seem to be trite. And silly things, while others may be more hopeful, but they all represent sin in God's eyes, and we find ourselves needing God's forgiveness again and again. The wonderful thing about the God that we serve is that He's always ready and willing to forgive us again and again when we ask. We, we can each take a great deal of solace in knowing that. But let's not lose sight of the fact that we also have a responsibility to let others know that God's forgiveness is for everyone. The other responsibility that we each have is to remember those will be judged by Christ. That we profess that in our words and deeds and actions, if we're to be God's ambassadors, then we need to remember who it is that we serve. And that we are able to should be called on to require today. Paul said, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And it's truly be God's message for each other's people.